You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States and the long 19th century. We're an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individual's employers, nor the official opinions of C19. Welcome to Teaching Harriet Jacobs in the Archives. In this episode, librarians and English faculty from Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, will discuss their work using archival records in conjunction with teaching Harriet Jacobs' 1861 narrative, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. The team was made aware of the papers of William Crenshaw through the Slavery, Race, and Memory Project, an effort by Wake Forest University to recover, understand, and reckon more fully with its history bound up with enslavement and its tragic legacies. William Crenshaw was a founding member of the Board of Trustees of the Wake Forest Manual Labor Institution and its first treasurer. Crenshaw's papers include over 20 bills of sale for enslaved people he held captive. The papers have been the subject of Wake Forest Symposia, Slavery, Race, and Memory Project publications, and what we'll focus on in today's discussion, they have been incorporated into instruction in various undergraduate courses. To introduce the panelists, I am Carrie Johnston, Digital Humanities Research Designer in Wake Forest's Z. Smith Reynolds Library, and I also teach in the English department. My name is Ryan Bowie. I am an Associate Teaching Professor in the Department of English. I'm Megan Mulder. I'm the Special Collections Librarian here at the library, and I do most of the subject-specific um, instruction sessions. And I'm Tanya Zanish Belcher, Director of Special Collections and Archives. Thank you for joining us today, and I am really glad to discuss these issues with Ryan, Carrie, and Megan. We will be talking about a collection we hold, the William Crenshaw Bills of Sale, and how they were used in Wake Forest courses and introduced to students. I will ask them specific questions and each of them will have an opportunity to respond. But I did wanna give a very short introduction from the special collections perspective. Collecting, why is it important? This collaboration should make it clear why special collections collects and purchases when we can, this material for faculty, students and researchers to utilize in their papers, presentations, projects and courses. Wake Forest University is a white institution, and the majority of our primary sources and collections are based on the white experience. This makes it even more of an imperative for us to purchase or receive collections, which can provide these opportunities for instruction and teaching from a human rights perspective. Special collections can provide access, whether by touching and handling the original document or sharing it online. But, and this is key, we are also able to assist with providing the all important context. Slavery and all that followed is a painful issue, especially that for those whose ancestors were enslaved. We need to remember that when witnessing the inherent violence of enslavement, that the experience will result in pain for those directly impacted. While it means discomfort for others of us, those feelings of discomfort remain important for comprehension and understanding. 
Special Collections is drafting additional online resources in support of those who need to examine these documents. Our goal is not to only provide access to primary sources, but additional resources for faculty to consider as they navigate complicated and sensitive subject matter, which can cause emotional trauma. Who creates these records? Who are represented by them? Who has choice? This is what you should always consider when working with archives. Digitization and historical research offers us the opportunity to represent these documents so we can overcome the silencing of Black voices. As archivist Robert Nowatsky stated in his recent article, From Datum to Databases, Digital Humanities, Slavery, and Archival Reparations, quote, the goal is to present and remember their humanity as part of an inhumane institution and the importance of context in speaking for those who cannot speak for themselves, unquote. So Ryan and, and Carrie, can you tell us a little bit more about the courses in which you incorporated the bills of sale? And Carrie, we'll start with you. Sure, thank you, Tanya. I incorporate the bills of sale into my lower division course, which I call Handmaids and Heroines in American Literature. And this course is mostly taken by non-English majors as it fulfills one of the undergraduate college's five divisional requirements. And um, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale is obviously the namesake of this incidents in the, or sorry, of, of this uh, Handmaids and Heroines course. But Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl is the central text through which I establish the main themes of the course, particularly the themes of engaging with texts written by women from a range of time periods and backgrounds who, like Jacobs, challenge oppressive systems. So Jacobs' text is the first that I assign in the class. And then I ask them, um, when, when we're finished reading Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, we look at the bills of sale, and I ask students to reflect on the ways that these bills inform her narrative and the ways the narrative informs the historical documents. And this is the first paper that they write for me in the class. And I'll hand it to Ryan. Thank you, um, Carrie. I introduced these documents in an upper level African-American literature course that focuses on how contemporary black writers, poets, and graphic artists engage complex histories of enslavement and the erasure of Black voices. I start with narratives by Jacobs and Douglas to ground students in an understanding of the actuality of slavery before we then delve into fictional reimaginings. How did the idea to incorporate bills of sale for the enslaved into instruction about Jacobs' narrative first come about? Ryan, we'll start with you. Well, as I said in my previous answer, I wanted them to be anchored in some sense of the history. I wanted them to hear the hear from some authentic voices. And in particular, I wanted them to be attuned to, to both the assertions of Black humanity that emerges within Black text and to put that in direct contact with the casual normative inhumanity as articulated through papers like the Crenshaw papers where you get the, the foregrounding of legal and transactional discourses. Um, and from there to move across the semester through the slippery tension between human and inhuman practices um, in, in ways that, that it was at least my hope would draw from them both kind of the 
intellectual engagement, but also an emotional engagement with the materials. So the idea to incorporate bills of sale um, into instruction about Jacobs's narrative came about for me when I first saw them um, digitized uh, through efforts from our special collections unit in the library. For me, I always struggled to teach the nuance of Jacobs's reaction to seeing her own bill of sale when her employer, Cornelia Grinnell Willis, purchased her freedom. And Jacobs says that her brain reeled when she read uh, the, the bill of sale. And she tells her audience that she doesn't like to look at it, even though she, of course, um, loves her freedom. And when I first saw one of these bills of sale in the Crenshaw papers, I more fully understood Jacobs's visceral reaction to seeing the document. And I thought about her call to action to her audience, um, which she says, you know, my bill of sale will be in the archives so that future generations can learn from it that women were articles of traffic in New York in the 19th century. And I really wanted to answer her call more fully. And that's what um, that's why I started incorporating those bills of sale into instruction. Although we don't have Jacobs's uh, bill of sale, we do have these um, other evidence, as she says, that women were articles of traffic. And um, we are answering her call to action, I believe, when I put these bills of sale into conversation with her text. Megan, can you describe the instruction you provided the students during the special collections and archives sessions? Sure. Um, so when the students came to special collections, they looked first of all, first of all, at the handwritten um, bills of sale and a few other related documents from the Crenshaw manuscript collection. Um, and as it was mentioned in the, the introduction, Crenshaw was a very important figure in the history of Wake Forest. Um, he was really one of the main driving forces behind the creation of Wake Forest College in the 1830s. Um, so one of my main priorities in giving some introductory instruction to the students before they start examining um, the materials is to give some context for these individual bills of sale, um, both in terms of the institutional history of the, the school, you know, where we are all right now, um, but also in the context of the larger Crenshaw collection. Um, the folder with the bills of sales is part of the larger um, series of financial records in general in the collection. Um, so it's, it's filed with things like land deeds and receipts for um, various other supplies for the Crenshaw farm and business. So even though the students aren't looking through the whole collection, um, I think it's very important for them to, to see this context, to understand where these documents fit into the larger collection. Um, I think it, it helps to really drive home the reality of how slavery was such an integral part of the economic um, life of the country at the time, um, and also how the enslavers viewed these bills as you know, really just another type of financial transaction. Um, so I try to really kind of um, set that context a little bit before um, they start looking at the, the individual um, materials. In addition to the bills of sale, um, during the class section, we also um, look at some related published materials from our collection. Um, we have an 1861 first edition of Jacob's Incidents, um, and they look at this, and our particular copy has um, traces of its original owner, which makes it very interesting to use um, in a classroom setting. It has the, an owner's signature um, of a woman's name and her location in New Hampshire. Uh, it also has a clipping pasted in of a religious poem 
And both the content of the poem and the handwriting of the signature suggests that the owner was probably a young girl or, or at least a fairly young woman, um, certainly probably unmarried. So that's an interesting aspect for students to consider. Um, and I try to talk about that, about how and why Jacobs's narrative would have been considered appropriate for her, not just to read, but to actually own her own copy and leave her mark on it. Um, so this is an important bit of you know, material evidence, um, which I hope kind of prompts them to start thinking about how the text um, would have been received in the 1860s. And then finally, we also look at some original print copies of 19th century newspapers with advertisements for um, runaway slaves and also for sales of enslaved people. And again, I try to encourage the students to look at the larger context. Um, you know, fugitive slave ads are something that's certainly available online digitally. Um, but I think that um, seeing them in the actual newspaper and the paper copies does make it easier for them to kind of see the context. Um, students can just, you know, look at the page and immediately see that um, these advertisements were just mixed in with all sorts of other ads. Um, and again, I think it shows how, you know, for white people of the time, slavery was just kind of a normal everyday um, thing. Um, and I, it's, for, for me, I always find that the best way to really kind of convey this to students is by um, giving them that context and immersing them in the primary sources as we do in this session. Thanks, Megan. Carrie and Ryan, how did Megan's instruction during the special collections session extend or add to the students' understanding of incidents in the life of a slave girl? Ryan, we'll begin with you. Megan's instruction was extremely helpful. The introduction that she provided, including her robust attention to how information circulated throughout the antebellum period, enabled my students who were reading Jacobs at the time to understand that she was not writing within a vacuum. When, for example, she breaches the fourth wall to speak directly to her target audience of Northern middle-class white women, or when her narrative employs elements of sentimental fiction, Jacobs's narrative illustrates her keen recognition that she had to write into and against accumulating contingent sets of beliefs about Black identity, slavery, and enslaved Black women's experiences. Uh, probing the materials within special collections grounded my students in the necessary context for better understanding Jacobs's text, but also the literature that we read throughout the rest of the semester. Yeah, thanks for that, Ryan. Um, the special collection session for my students gave them a fantastic lesson using 19th century print culture to expand their understanding of Jacobs's historical context. They were particularly intrigued by the 19th century newspapers, especially by the number of fugitive slave ads that were in these papers. During our conversations in the classroom about incidents in the life of a slave girl, they often would ask me about the ads placed by James Norcom in an effort to locate Jacobs and to return her to captivity. And we discussed the culture of surveillance created by these ads and that fear and surveillance is as much the aim of these ads as is the return of the person. And when the students saw these newspapers, they really, uh, it helped them to better understand Jacobs's discussions about the impact of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which required by law, the return of enslaved people who had escaped from the South to the North. And looking at these newspapers during the special collection session, we could begin to imagine what it must have been like to open the paper and see advertisements for fugitives from slavery 
and know that in order to be a law-abiding citizen, you had to be complicit in helping to identify and capture these people um, who were fighting for their freedom. Well, I think you're raising a good point. I would like to hear more about what discoveries did you and your students make when viewing these bills of sale? Um, Carrie, this time I'll start with you first. Yeah, so the bills are handwritten and the 19th century cursive handwriting and a lot of the abbreviations that they use prove pretty difficult to, to decipher. And I'll say that when I first started looking at them, it was difficult for me. It took me a while to get into the rhythm of reading these as well. So uh, in our in-person sessions, I ask students to pair up and, and there are enough um, of these documents so that each student can ha has one bill that they look at. And they pair up and they work on deciphering the language together and kind of struggling through that process of, of reading the language helps to facilitate some discoveries about the bills of sale. And together they discover that there's a lot of legal or boilerplate language on the bills of sale that's essentially consistent um, across most of the documents. And in this language, it conveys the uh, right and title of the people listed on the bill of sale to the enslaver and to his descendants in perpetuity. And so paying attention to this le legal language um, really helps to illuminate Jacobs's comments early on in her narrative um, about generational wealth. Um, she talks about her grandmother seeking to be reimbursed. Uh, her grandmother uh, loaned money to her mistress who passed away. And as they were um, settling her estate, her grandmother was denied the money uh, that she loaned her mistress. And Jacobs points out that that money was used to purchase silver candelabra. And Jacob says that she imagines that that candelabra will be uh, those candelabra will be passed down from generation to generation in the white family. And, um, and the implication is, is that family will um, gain wealth generation after generation with the money that her grandmother loaned to the mistress and was essentially stolen from her. And so um, this conveys th this discovery, just starting with the discoveries of that legal language and, and struggling through reading the handwriting, I think helps them to really understand the arguments that Jacobs is making about generational wealth um, in her narrative. Thank you, Carrie. My students also focused on the legal language. And once they understood and could transcribe it properly, they, were, they became increasingly more aware of the boilerplate legal language and, and its implications, in particular, how it gestured to the settled and ordinary practices of selling human beings who could be both individually named and yet continuously denied subjectivities. The other thing that they noted were the dates. Among the repetitive dates were July 4th and December 25th, which themselves obviously have religious and patriotic claims. What they saw through Jacobs's narrative were the myriad ways that pro-slavers skimmed over the contradictions. You could have Mr. Norgum, for example, endlessly proclaim his deep religiosity and morality, and at the same time encounter the dehumanizing ways that he enslaved and persecuted and preyed upon Jacobs in terms of both her desire to preserve her virtue and later through her love for her children. 
the contradictions between those symbolic dates and the ways that those practices lived became a central piece for my students to understand and to carry forward into later readings. In addition to that, my students had a visceral reaction or visceral reactions to a document entitled The Valuation of Negroes, a document that I also had a reaction to. It names the 22 enslaved human beings who were sold by the Crenshaw estate and across from their names were the assigned monetary values. The names of the people who could not or were not allowed to speak um, continued through our discussions to be countered by Jacobs's narrative. And in particular, through the various ways that she defines her value outside of that dehumanizing frame. Thank you, Carrie and Ryan, for those insights. And I'm curious to hear more about what connections did the students make between the bills of sale and Jacob's text? Ryan? So, so for my students, a connection that they made, and, and I'll anchor it in the, the, the opening lines from um, incident, uh, from chapter seven of Incidents, Why Does the Slave Ever Love? Part of what they began to recognize as they moved between the silencing of voices that in those documents, right? Because we're not getting the voices, we're getting names and monetary values, not the dreams, not the aspirations, not the relationships, even though we recognize that there are children listed separately from, from mothers and fathers potentially, and, 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 and how, that, how those relationships are denied. Um, and, but then they get to put those in conversation with Jacobs's particular precarity, uh, precarious relationship to love, right? At the moment that she articulates that in chapter seven, um, she has come to realize that, that whatever choices she makes are going to be choices to survive the system, not freely chosen um, events that, that exist in her life. And, um, and that carries over even in how she has to maneuver and, and exist um, in relationships with her family, with her children, when she spends those years in the garret, right? Like, and, and can only have contact with them from a distance, right? Love becomes this, love, love is both this quintessentially human engagement, and yet it, it also is the site of deep precarity for her throughout the text. And my students get to kind of see that and, and, and put that in, 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 in a context that enriches their understanding of Jacobs um, and, and her, her, her determination to survive both for herself, but also more importantly for her children. Yeah, I'll, I will echo that um, precarity of those human relationships. I would say that looking at the bills of sale um, really does help students to better understand what Jacobs is doing rhetorically in her narrative to demonstrate that uh, to her readers. And um, one of the biggest connections that students made between the, doc the historical documents and Jacobs's narrative had to do with the, um, with the a sexual assault of enslaved women and girls that Jacobs so bravely wrote about in her narrative. And, you know, most of my students uh, just recognized right away the um, number of names that were girls and women. Um, listed on these bills of sale, and they remarked that Jacobs's life story really illuminated for them um, what may have happened um, to these women and girls. And we won't 
and we don't ever know. Um, as Ryan pointed out, you have these bills of sale that you know list names and dollars, but we don't really get um, the the stories and and the relationships of these uh, people. And my students often connect this to chapter three, which is um, the slaves New Year's Day, where Jacobs compares her experience um, as an enslaved woman, um, you know, in, on New Year's Day, which she tells us was, um, she calls it hiring day um, in her region in which families were separated. And she urges her audience, um, specifically, she, she talks, uh, she speaks to white women, urging them to compare their New Year's Day, which is one of celebration and renewal, to the enslaved woman's New Year's Day. Um, and, and students, you know, upon seeing those bills of sale, um, particularly for the girls um, who, these young girls who were listed, um, you know, and we have this document that's evidence that this young girl is, is most likely being sold away from her family. Um, and they, and they think about the, uh, some of the, the major, um, takeaways from, from Jacobs's narrative, uh, which are, you know, the enslaved woman's inability because of the systems in which, um, she operates her inability to protect her children. Um, and so the bills of sale really do illuminate, um, these really important points that, that Jacobs uh, makes throughout the book and, and the reason she wrote the book. If I could just add, um, I really love um, the point that you just made there, Carrie. Um, and, and in particular, in, in linking it to the later point when she gives birth to a, a, a female child who is also because of the, the the way that the system is structured now a slave because of the mother's kind of status right mm -hmm. um that that in some ways you know she 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 draws our attention to how how much more um frightening the conditions like it, it's you know how how the, she she invites us to understand her fear as a mother giving birth to a female child who will experience potentially future persecution and sexual predation um, under this system. So how did the two of you prepare in terms of context and or potential trauma for the session in special collections and archives in which they would view, the students would view these bills of sale for the first time? Gary? Yeah, um, the first time I taught this assignment, I really did not incorporate discussion about the bills of sale um, into our discussions about incidents in the life of a slave girl until our final day of talking about the book. And it really was in the context of talking about Jacobs's reaction to her own bill of sale. And I told the students, you know, we're going to be looking at similar documents in the archives. We're going to be looking at other bills of sale. And I gave them a trigger warning at that point that these were sensitive materials that provide evidence of human rights violations, but we really hadn't incorporated much discussion about it or any discussion up until that point. And so when the students were examining their bills of sale in spe the special collections classroom, I realized that that brief trigger warning in the class period before just was not enough. And specifically, it was the act of transcribing the bills. As I mentioned before, reading that 19th century handwriting was difficult, you know, it's, it's difficult to um, decipher. And so they spent a good amount of time trying to figure out what the bills said and they're, and they're transcribing the bills. And 
copying down that language that is reducing human beings to a monetary value and also them writing down the names and ages, especially of the younger children that were listed on those bills. I'm not sure that anything could prepare anyone for that experience. And so to be honest, I, I, I still wrestle with the ethics of the assignment, um, particularly asking them to, to transcribe the bills. So one alternative is for me to transcribe the bills for them and to provide those transcriptions so they won't have to um, actually write down those exact words that are on the bill. Um, but since the first time I taught this assignment, I've changed my instruction to better incorporate discussion about the bills into our discussions of Jacobs's text. And we talk about the fact that very little exists in terms of written records about people who are enslaved. And I emphasize those moments in Jacobs's narrative in which she says that she's writing for the many girls and women who are still enslaved. And this preparation, I think, doesn't necessarily diminish the visceral and emotional response of looking at the bills in person, but I do believe that they're more prepared because they understand why they're looking at these historical documents. It's not as jarring, and we have um, really established the connection between the historical documents and the narrative, so they're not sitting there looking at these um, really difficult documents and wondering why in the world they're being made to do so. My approach to this was also focused on recognizing how this content might be triggering to my students. Um, readings from the early chapters of incidents had already carried my students through a range of emotions, but I wanted them to understand the visceral experience of being present with documents like the bills of sale or the valuation document in the Crenshaw collection. On the day of our visit, I asked Megan if I could take a few minutes before they looked at the documents and after um, to set them up for um, reflective writing assignments. Um, I wanted to create space for them to sit with their emotions, um, but not with the pressure of a grade, not with the expectation that they had to show the emotions publicly, but just to understand that it's okay to, in some ways, process this, to not just, you know, I, I didn't want them to walk out of the room with the weight of this without some effort to, to give some kind of formal or informal expression to how it made them feel to be in the presence of these, these deeply troubling artifacts from history. Thank you. Carrie, you briefly mentioned the ethics of this assignment. And would you and Ryan please expand further on this issue? Ryan, starting with you. For me, the question of ethics is always foremost in my mind, especially in a course where writers and artists are actively taking and transforming traumatic experiences from the past. The overlay of bringing in historical documents from a pro-slavery position adds a new dimension to this question because it threatens to center and, and legitimate those viewpoints. That of course is not my intention, but that is always a concern as I enter into conversations with students about what they represent, why we're looking at them and how we 
can use that knowledge to better understand ways that Black writers over time, but certainly um, slave narrators like Jacobs and Douglas are writing into and against those ideas. Thanks for that perspective, Ryan. And I love the way you put it, writing into and against those ideas. And when I teach Jacobs, I'm always thinking about the ways that she's writing into and against uh, prominent prominent ideas about um, particularly uh, women who are enslaved. And so when I reflect on the ethics of the assignment, um, I really think about how this assignment affects students differently. I've had a few Black students share with me how traumatic it is to see these documents. And I've had many white students say that the assignment impacted them in ways they didn't anticipate on an emotional level and in a visceral way. But uh, from what I can tell through my observations and also through my conversations with different students, it just really does not compare to the trauma experienced by the Black students in my class. And so seeing the disparity um, about how, you know, the disparity between looking at these documents, how it affects Black students versus the rest of the class always makes me second guess the assignment. And I have given an, an alternative assignment to a student who expressed to me the difficulty of writing about these documents um, that attest to the human rights violations that her ancestors experienced. But I've also changed a few things about the way that uh, I, I teach this. And Ryan, I appreciate you saying that about uh, letting the students reflect on how, you know, how this is affecting them. At first, I didn't, I didn't have that in my assignment, and I actually changed it when we went online during the uh, fall 2020 semester. Uh, it just felt, I felt so distant from them in the online teaching context that I gave them some time to reflect without having to be graded on it, um, on how looking at these documents made them feel. And I think it really did change the tone of the assignment uh, because they were given that space to write about their emotions and to put their feelings into words. And uh, it was really great to be intentional about that. And I think before when I wasn't very intentional about talking about the, the, the visceral reaction, it signaled to them that this was purely an analytical assignment. There was no place for emotion and that was not my intent at all. But I, I always continue this assignment uh, really uh, because of the, the volume of comments I get um, in my teaching evaluations at the end of the semester uh, about just how much these bills of sale conveyed the importance of Jacobs's narrative. And the fact that they're remembering the very first book we read from the semester and talking about specifics about that book in their teaching evaluations um, says to me that uh, the bills really do help them focus on what Jacobs was achieving through her text. So Carrie, I, I, I loved hearing you walk through your process of approaching teaching these documents, your recognition of the way that it lands disproportionately for some students over, you know, as opposed to others. Um, and what's interesting is it reminded me, and I didn't introduce it at first, but it reminded me that I had a conversation with a student of color ahead of our visit who initially said they didn't want to go, right? That they didn't want to, to it, it wasn't that they did not want to do the work for the course, but they didn't want to do it in a crowd. Yeah. Um, and, 
in that moment, right? Like you're, you were talking, you're talking about different approaches and options. And I gave that student the option of, of going separately and requesting the, the content and looking at it with some measure of privacy so that they could be emotional without it, it feeling like it's on display for everyone else in the room to see. Uh, that student actually didn't take me up on that ultimately and, and came to the class, but it, was a, it, it, it also brought attention for me to the fact that I need to create those kinds of options. Thank you, Ryan, for sharing that idea about accommodations for this assignment. I think that's an excellent way to conclude our discussion today. Many thanks to everybody here, Tanya Zanish-Belcher, Megan Mulder, and Ryan Bowie. I'm Carrie Johnston, and we just would also like to thank Brianna Durr of Wake Forest Information Systems for her behind-the-scenes work today, as well as the C19 Podcast Subcommittee. Thank you for joining us for this discussion on teaching Harriet Jacobs in the archives. Thank you for listening to the C19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19Podcast or get in touch with us at C19Podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.